Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Joe List began his stand-up career in Boston in 2000 after graduating from high school, rising up the ranks in Boston's heralded comedy scene before moving to New York City. He has toured with the likes of Louis C.K. and Nick DiPaolo, and since 2013, he's co-hosted the popular podcast Tuesdays with Stories with comedian Mark Norman. List's singular credits include performing on The Late Show with David Letterman, half hours on both Netflix and Comedy Central, and reaching the finals of the final season of NBC's Last Comic Standing. List has recorded two previous comedy albums, and his first solo hour special, I Hate Myself, premiered in August 2020 on Comedy Central's YouTube channel. It had earned more than half a million views in its first week, which is when I sat down with him over Zoom to talk about his life and career. So let's get to it! Joe List, thank you so much. I can't believe it's taken this long to get us uh, to do this with microphones and computers, especially living in the same neighborhood. I'm excited, yeah. I mean... We used to live very close. Although I don't think you lived in that apartment when I was living down the street. Or did you? I can't even remember. No. Uh, okay. So we both live in Astoria. Uh, when I, you moved, you moved down from Boston first. When I, when I moved down, I crashed in your living room on an air mattress. With, uh, and Bulger let me, let me stay there and hung out with him while I was looking for my first apartment. Okay. Yeah, that that makes sense. That whole area of my life is a little blurry. <laughs> um, it was wild, especially in that apartment. I mean, that was insanity. Yes, it was. Um, well, last things first, as long as we're talking about that, you were, so you were sharing an apartment with two other Boston comedians who moved at the same time, Dan Bolger and Ira Proctor. What is it that you think made you stick it out while both of them went back to Boston? You know, I don't know. I mean, I think, I mean, I can't speak for them, but I remember there was, we all moved down together. And then I think we had that apartment for like two years. And there was like a total of like 35 nights that all three of us were there together. (laughs) And uh, I was there the most, but I went back all the time too. Um, But yeah, I think it's really tricky to go from Boston where you have, you're doing well and everyone knows you. It's a small scene. You can kind of be work for everyone that books clubs and being kind of working at all the clubs there. And then you move to New York and nobody care. I mean, literally nobody cares. It takes a lot of uh, humility to kind of, I had to kind of start over in New York after a while. I had to be like, Oh, all right, I guess I got to go to open mics because nobody cares. Like we all came down thinking like we, Maybe maybe not Bulger as much, but Ira and I definitely thought we had accomplished a lot in Boston. And I kind of had some credits even-ish. And I thought, this is going to be something. I'm going to come to New York and everyone's going to be blown away. And uh, nobody cares. I mean, still nobody cares. <laughs> like, if I, if I left New York, nobody would be like, what? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, all right. So um, that, was, that was weird to get used to. But yeah, it definitely took a lot of... Uh, Humble pie, I guess they say. Even even though you had initially tried to start your comedy career at 18 in New York instead of Boston in the first place? No, I, I started in Boston. I was just, 
I started in Boston, but I would come down to New York like every once in a while, like once a month or so and do a bringer or something like that. Yeah, that sounds crazy to me. <laughs> As an 18-year-old in, in a scene like Boston where you're like, okay, I can grow, I can learn here. And you're like already thinking, yeah, no, I'm going to go to New York. I'm going to do it. I'm going to. Yeah, I well, I just always thought I should be somewhere else. Like I was going to move to Toronto. I had a Toronto like um, book, like a like like a photos or whatever, like travel book. Like I was like, because I love Jim Carrey, and okay. I was like, oh man, that's where you got to go if you want to make. And just not realizing I'm leaving like the best <laughs> comedy city in like America to start in. Um, and so I remember like I had it all set. I was like, I'm going to go to Toronto. I'll be like a Canadian comic or something. Mm-hmm. And then um, I was like obsessed with New York and felt like that was, co- that was like comedy to me was New York comedy. So I'd try to go down there and um, I was very resistant to being in Boston for some reason because I felt like it was small potatoes. Well, if, if, if once, once you do make the move to New York, Boston really does feel like small potatoes. Yeah, I think so. But it, it was ended up being like, then I got, made friends or something but but somehow i mean this is like to a greater mental thing as i always thought like somewhere else was better so mm. i felt like i need to get out of here and go i think it was that my obsession with bruce springsteen made me be like i gotta hit the road man you were you were born to run exactly <laughs> what does it mean have you have you talked to either your therapist about this about what it means to to feel like you're born to run but also full of self-loathing yeah, I think that's part of it is that I think if like if I could just get out of here, I would be somebody. And then and then you go to New York and you're like, no, I hate myself here too. It's funny because when I when I was living and working in, in Boston, it felt like you were one of the guys who was who was actually starting to make it. Like you were you were one of the guys who was always featuring at the connection. Yeah. So I, I got in pretty good there at the comedy connection when Ryan Cott took over the booking. And um, I always think I remember we would party hard there. And one time Ryan, my friend Ryan took over the booking and um, he was like, Hey, you want to, you want to drink? And I was like, yeah, I'll have a rum and Coke. And he was like, what kind of rum do you like Captain Morgan or Bacardi? And normally I drank Captain Morgan, but Bacardi had more alcohol and I wasn't sure how many free drinks I was going to get. So I said, I'll have a Bacardi and Coke. And he was like obsessed with Bacardi. And he was like, whoa, dude. He's like, great choice. I love Bacardi. And I could feel that. I was like, this is a big moment in my career. I picked the right rum. (laughs) And I was funny and a good comic anyways. But it felt like, oh, I just got in with the guy because we're both Bacardi. And so from then on for like years, I had to always drink Bacardi, even though I preferred uh, Captain Morgan because I was like, no, no, I'm the Bacardi guy. And that's how I got Uh in. So anyways... Also, I was a, I was a very good comic and a professional, but I started opening for a lot of those big acts: David Tell and Nick DiPaolo and Colin Quinn. No, I never I didn't open Colin up there, but um, a lot of those guys. And um, yeah, so it felt like and Dane Cook. So I felt like I was working. Yeah, one of my early memories of that involves you in Boston was the weekend Bobby Kelly recorded a CD at the Connection, and for some reason, after one of the shows. You and I ended up at a bar, another bar in Faneuil Hall with like one of the waitresses and maybe Ryan and we're just sitting there drinking and the Yankees are clobbering the Red Sox. Wow. I don't remember that at all. (laughs) 
<laughs> but, you know, so, so much hasn't changed. Like the Yankees still clobbering the Red Sox in 2020. Um, yeah, we stink. <laughs> but this year doesn't count. Nothing in this year counts except for your special. Thank you. How, how, so congratulations on that. Um, so many people have been putting out specials on YouTube, whether it's with Comedy Central or without. And I wonder when you decided to make this special, how much conversations did you have with like Sam Morell and Mark Normand about that process? Um, a fair amount. I think we all kind of had the same idea um, because we were all kind of talking about that and we weren't sure what was going on with specials, but Sam was out in front. So he had kind of um, shopped his special around. He shot like a, I don't know, like a, a demo tape to put it in whatever term, like a, a set of his just on his own camera to kind of shop around. And it felt like no one was really interested in making his special. And so I just thought if Sam is not selling a special, then I won't be able to sell a special. So then he ended up shooting it on his own and Comedy Central bought it and put it on um, Comedy Central YouTube and it blew up. I mean, it worked out great because um, everybody streams everything anyway. So in TV, it, it, it airs on TV once sometimes and all that stuff. So um, it went great. And Sam was, it was nice because Sam did that. So I was like, all right, that seemed to work. And, um, Mark did a similar thing. He ended up putting his out on his own. So then for me, it was kind of this, do you do it this way or that way? And, um, to me, it just seemed better to have somebody, um, backing it and putting it up on there. Like comedy central has, I think one and a half million, 1.3 million subscribers. And, um, I've always had a great relationship with them. So I was like, great, perfect. Um, when they were, they were willing to, uh, take it on. So it wasn't, too difficult it felt like all right the option is shoot it on your own and then see if anyone will buy it and then they made an offer and i said great so i'm not great with the business end so i just went okay perfect that all sounds easy to me and 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 the fact that sam's special on comedy central youtube took off made it probably a lot easier for you to to say yes to that yeah. Oh, for sure. The fact that his was so successful and I imagine for them too going, all right, well that was successful. It, it, it seemed like, um, it was, it was, what do you call it? Mutually, uh, beneficial, I think is a term that people use. I remember, you know, when we were both much younger, there was a big debate about doing gigs for money versus doing gigs for exposure that didn't really pay. But like, Oh, but you're going to be on TV, so you're going to have this exposure. How much, with everything that's changed with technology and with YouTube and streaming platforms, is that still a debate in your mind or for your friends? Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, like, both things feel um, necessary, but in this this day and age, it feels like, you know, getting seen by people, it, it pays tenfold. I mean, first of all, Comedy Central did pay me for the, the special. Um, but the exposure thing, it ends up, I'm, I feel like at a point with stand-up that I'm like, I'm at a level with my stand-up sort of um, skill-wise, I guess, that I'm like, if people see it, they'll think it's good. They'll be like, great. So the only thing stopping me from having um, fans at this spot is people seeing it and being like, oh, this is great. 
Um, whereas I think sometimes early on, especially people take advantage of comedians by getting them to work for free under the guise of, Hey, you're going to get exposure when in reality they're not. Um, but to me in this situation, YouTube, someone putting it on their YouTube that has a million subscribers, I'm like, that is definitely going to be seen. Um, and then of course doing all the podcasts and the media and having people tweet will also bring more, um, eyes to it. So, it's weird because at different points in your career, you need exposure and then you don't need exposure and then you do need exposure, if that makes sense. Yeah. Like early on, you don't want exposure because you stink. And then it's like you get pretty good and then people are like, oh, it's exposure, but they're really just ripping you off. And then you get to another level where you're like, hey, we will ex we'll expose how good you are to a lot of people. That's the way I kind of see it. What was, where, where in the calculus then was deciding to do the last season of Last Comic Standing? that was that paid well and did not really get much exposure <laughs> that was like that was strange i thought doing that season of last comic standing so there's been so many things in my career that i thought this is going to blow me up like mm -hmm. do, when i did letterman i was like here we go now my life is changing not much came of it i did a netflix half hour and then i was like this is going to be huge and then i was a finalist on last comic that was another that was before netflix and I remember thinking like, this is going to be wild. I'm going to be really, and nobody watched that season. Um, no, I mean like nobody. And, um, but that is a union gig. So I made a, not, I want to say a ton of money, but relatively to me, it was a ton of money. Okay. Um, how did you, you know, mention Mark Norman. How did you end up uh, teaming up with, with Mark? in the first place to, to decide to podcast together way back in 2013. So Mark and I, I, Mark and I had the same manager when he moved to town. First of all, this goes back to drinking and mental problems. I just hated everybody that showed up. I mean, I had that thing. Everyone I ever met, I was like, I hate that guy. I don't like that guy. Who's this new guy? And um, I was like, I don't, I don't know what's up with this guy. And then we had the same manager and we drove to Boston together for some reason. And we just started talking about, Seinfeld and we both had a mutual the TV show Seinfeld and both just had a mutual obsession with Seinfeld, Larry David, Kirby Enthusiasm and it felt like um, this spiritual connection to somebody that, that was that obsessed with comedy and specifically Seinfeld and stand-up comedy and so um, we bonded like huge over that and then I had this idea for the podcast which the idea for the podcast started as an idea for an actual thing um, based on Red Arbach's book, um, Let Me Tell You a Story, where him and all his basketball buddies would get together every, I think, Monday or something at a Chinese restaurant and just tell basketball stories. And I liked the idea of getting a bunch of comedy people together on Tuesdays because some people are traveling on Monday, so they have Sunday shows. And right. I was like, we'll get all the comics together on Tuesday and we'll all tell our stories about what we did that weekend. And I was like, we'll call it Tuesdays with Stories. And this was before pods were even big. And then I just realized it was too difficult to organize that. Like nobody's around. People are like, let's go to this diner. And I was just like, oh, fuck it. Mm -hmm. And then podcasts were happening. I was like, I could do it as a podcast. And I thought the only person that I could do it with is Mark. We, we would just have that Seinfeldian, George and Jerry thing. And originally the idea was to have a couple guests on and do it as like a, almost like a round table. And after a while, people 
no offense to the guests, but our fans just kept being like, we like it when it's just you two. We just want to hear from you two. And so then it kind of morphed into this um, sort of Seinfeld tribute, but still under the thing of like, what'd you do this weekend, basically? At what point did you guys see the benefits of subscription models like Patreon and... So that was like, I had, I think I heard about it from Cometown, which is so funny to have like a serious conversation about stuff and have to say Cometown, but I had heard they were making a ton of money by making, doing a bonus episode and that, that people would subscribe to get bonus material. And I thought that was insane and sounded great. And, um, and then Mike Cannon, the comedian gave us the idea that when he was on the road or something, he would just play his phone recorder and just talk to somebody that he was with. And then that would be bonus material. So Mark and I started doing that. And, um, yeah, Mark would be on the road and do one with his feature and I would do one with my feature. And then we would do live episodes and throw those up there. And that started to build. And our Patreon really has done a lot better during this period because neither one of us had anything to do. So we're like, we'll just do bonus episodes. And so that helped it grow a lot. And um, people seem, people like to support. They enjoy bonus stuff and they like uh, supporting the comics they like. So it's been extremely beneficial, especially during this time because it's the only thing that kept me making any money how what was the uh what was the time period in terms of actually getting people to sign up for patreon um i don't know i mean we've been doing it for a while now and then because originally at one point podcasts were just doing donation like you could like you can donate to us that we did that early on we got a few people that were like monthly subscribing and then it became it's hard to even remember when all this kind of started and how long it's been going for. But I know it's definitely grown a lot like early on in the pandemic or the shutdown, whatever it was, because we just started putting out way more bonus material. And it's one of those things you get to a point where enough people enjoy the show that you're like, Hey, there's extra stuff. So give us money for that. And they're like, okay, great. And it's sort of, again, like mutually beneficial. So you have over a little over 3000 now. That's, that's, that's quite a lot of people. Yeah. We just, we just crossed 3000, uh, this week. So, um, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty great. Although percentage wise, I think like 75,000 people listen to our podcast. So it's not great <laughs> percentage of the people, but we are in a, quite an economic downturn. If you, if you haven't uh, heard about it. Yeah. Yeah. The inability to tour cuts into your, income substantially one of the one of the other things i remember about you early on was that um and i guess this probably set you apart from from bolger and proctor also was the fact that you got in into uh, nick DiPaolo's good graces so you were able to tour steadily yeah so i start which is a funny story that i've told in a bunch of podcasts before but yeah i was listening to one of those versions the other day it's, it is a very funny story yeah. So yeah. Um, I mean, I've told it a bunch, so I'll just tell it quick, but yeah, I was opening for him and I couldn't do the first night of the gig. And my friend Owen bonus was just making small talk. And Nick was like, Hey, shut up. We're not girls. We don't need to force the conversation, which is very much Nick's you know, disposition. And, uh, yeah. And then Owen warned me. So I just really was very quiet and uh, Nick appreciated that. I just did my jokes and stuck to myself. So yeah, I started going on the road with him and that was amazing because I did it for years um, and got to do all these comedy clubs all over the all over the center of the country. He never went farther west because he hates to 
He hates people. Um, but that's a whole other... We, we've noticed. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other topic. But, um, but yeah, so I, I got like a taste of road work back mm-hmm. in 06. So um, that helped. And then he kind of got me in at the comedy cellar for a minute. I blew that. But again, another story. <laughs> but, um, you, you've toured with both... So you toured with, with Nick in your early days. And then up until the pandemic, you were touring with Louis C.K. Yeah. I wouldn't, and I wouldn't compare you to either one of those guys, even though you're all from the Boston area. Um, but what did you learn both on stage and off from touring with both of those guys? Well, Nick, I remember, I mean, Nick back then was just pure funny all the time, a million jokes and I remember like a valuable lesson to me was because I was just kind of half assing comedy for the majority of my career. And again, just drinking, fucking around. And I remember we did Appleton uh, Skyline Comedy Club and I was opening for him. And for whatever reason, there was some air show, a huge air show in town. And so all the hotels were booked. So he had to share the condo with me um, begrudgingly. And so we were in the condo together and I remember sitting watching TV, just flicking through channels and looking and his like, his bedroom door was open. I could just see him like in his underwear with two notebooks open and listening to a set and writing. And I remember having like this epiphany of like, oh, that's, that's the difference between his act and my act is he's spending time working on it. Um, and he would listen to sets after the show and in between and really work. And I, I never did that ever. I just didn't think to do that. Um, so I kind of got that from him. And then also his just, his anger, he was just purely him on stage, but also would break into really silly stuff back then, at least. I think he still does now to some degree. Um, I don't see him as much, but he would just be really silly and just own the stage and was completely him. And that to me was all things that really made me want to be like him as a comic. Um, and Louis was interesting because, I mean, by the time I started working with Louis, I mean, I was like 16 years in. So I had kind of established what I was doing and I was working a lot harder and was pretty successful. Um, so not to say there's nothing I learned from, didn't learn from Louis, but um, that was a little less formative years, I think. Um, but he's another guy too that was always listening to sets, reworking stuff and and, and toying with with bits, which I do a lot less of. I get a, a good laugh and I'm like, great. Next thing, let me move on. I don't, I don't do a lot of, um, you know, messing with bits that are working. What about, I mean, just the, the, the fact that you, you've worked with Louie in the months, in the early months of 2017. And then also uh, in the last couple of years, what did you learn about watching him go through the, the process of, the Me Too movement and cancel culture and all of this, all of those buzzwords that, that we talk about with, with that. What did you learn from watching him kind of process all of that? Yeah, a, it was, I mean, close? It, it was pretty, it's a cra- it's a strange experience because, um, I mean, I watched him change certainly, uh, obviously his career, but his disposition too. I mean, I understand that some people people don't want to uh, hear about where it was hard for him, and I totally get that. But um, 
he was pretty devastated. So it was like, it was different. Like he was felt like a completely uh, different guy for a long time. Now it feels a little bit more um, normal as far as his disposition or whatever, or, you know, the way he behaves. But yeah, I mean, it was pretty like a, a lot of our relationship during that time was me just going like, Hey, how, how are you doing? Um, and it was less like, I got this new bit. That's a funny bit. That's a great bit. What are you doing? And a lot more like, yeah, man, sorry about that. Uh, see you later. So that was weird. And then um, sort of him, I wouldn't hear from him for long periods of time because he was doing whatever he was doing. But um, And then it felt like he started to work again, doing stand-up again. And it was definitely... I think for him, it's kind of like a much different experience, certainly performing at Governor's as opposed to Madison Square Garden. But there's sure. still those same, it's a much smaller crowd, but those people are still, you know, excited to see him. And um, now it feels like he's very much back to like, here's a new bit I'm working on. And what do you think about this bit? And I'm like, what do you think about this bit? So, no, yeah, well, I, I watched the special that he put out that was filmed at the very last possible moment. Was that filmed before or after you filmed? That was filmed. Good question. Because you guys both filmed right at the last moment, right? Yeah, that's a good question. He filmed before me, I think. Because he was supposed to film in April in Boston. At mm -hmm. April 4th. That's why I have my book next to me. He was supposed to perform. Yes, he performed. No, wait. It was after me. He performed. God, now I'm like confused. <laughs> he performed after me. I know that because I was in Plano, which was my last weekend. He performed his was his was after mine. Oh, okay. Because he was supposed to do April 4th in Boston at the Orpheum and I remember distinctly now being in Plano, Texas and him calling me and saying, "I think I'm going to shoot this weekend." And I thought, oh, "Okay, that seemed crazy." Like I was like, "All right," because he's like, "I don't see how this Boston show is going to happen." And I thought he was insane. I thought he was just paranoid. Um, and I was like, all right. And there was part of me that was bummed because I wasn't going to get to be there. And I was like, all right, sure, you weirdo. And then, uh, so he shot. And then, uh, sure enough, the show got canceled like a, couple, a week later or whatever. So right. yeah, he, he, he must have shot like five days after I shot mine. Okay. That's uh, quite uh, serendipitous, I guess, to be able to, to shoot... If you had tried to shoot at the Village Underground a week later, you, you wouldn't have been able to. Yeah, it's, I feel like forever great. Like, well, that's one of the things I'm most grateful for is to have been able to shoot that because then it's like all this time passes and you're just like, forget those jokes. Forget, I can't bring all those jokes back because I already have. And the reason I was shooting them was I already, I had too much material. I was starting to have like a new 45 minutes. So I was like, let me knock that out. Um, so yeah, extremely grateful that I got to do that. Uh, you know, during this pandemic, a lot of people have been uh, grappling with anxiety who may not have had as much experience as you or I with it. <laughs> yeah. I, does it, does it, do you find that, that it's actually been easier for you with anxiety wise during, during quarantine and the pandemic than, than perhaps other people? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I think, um, well, there's a lot of like studies like that, that anxious people, really anxious people are like the best in a um, crisis. There's like, I've, I remember reading that like years ago and being like, yeah. Um, but 
it feels like a lot of ways like I've prepared for this my whole life. And um, what's really helped me is the idea that my worst nightmares of my, my worst fears came true and I'm still here. Like I've always my whole life been afraid of some crazy event that was going to shut down the economy or end comedy or, um, you know, cause mass death and everyone would be sick and dying. And it sort of has happened. And it was, it was anxiety inducing and scary at first, obviously. Uh, and there's still times where I'm like, Oh no, uh, don't get me wrong. I'm not brimming with hope for the future, but I'm still like, you know, we're here, I'm doing podcasts. We're figuring it out. I'm doing shows outside and people do adapt and adjust. And also, you know, through therapy and sobriety and meditation, I've really come to understand that I'm like, there's very little I can control. And that actually helps me be less anxious. Normally when I'm extremely anxious or even depressed, it's because I'm trying to control something, um, something that I can't control. And so that's really helped of like, I cannot cure COVID. I can't come up with a, uh, whatever. All I can do is wear my mask and stay separate and do outdoor shows. And uh, at least we can still do some outdoor shows. I don't know. Ed, Ed, as, we're, as we're talking right now, it seems like New York City is trying to change the rules once more about what, what com comedians can and can't do. So, Yeah, I've heard that. I hope that that doesn't... So who knows what it'll be like when this, when this podcast comes out. But, um, but at least you have more than half a million people watching your new Comedy Central special. So that's, that's comforting. Yeah, it's pretty wild. And uh, I don't know. It's exciting. It's been really nice. I'm happy with it. I'm cautiously very excited. But, you know, uh, that anxiety comes back in of like, oh, God, something worse is going to happen. Something's going to happen to me. I'll get sick and die because things are happening. Uh, that's just well, anxiety. Yeah. I don't know how many times I've thought about your old joke about anxiety and meditation. Oh, I should sit alone in a room with nothing but my thoughts. Right. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm still trying to um, figure that stuff out, but getting better. Well, uh, you know, talking to you has made me feel better. So thank you so much for doing this. Oh, good. Glad to hear it. Yeah, of course. Happy to, happy to do it. I love, uh, I love talking comedy and anxiety so anytime <laughs> this episode of the comics comic presents last things first was produced by alex brazell at showbiz studios the music by camille harris and shockwave logo by giggle chick please check out my website thecomicscomic.com more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first. Last things first.